This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Cities all across the country are struggling to keep up with the demand for affordable housing. In Chicago, well, it's no different. The cost of renting and living here hasn't shown signs of improvement either. In fact, it's on the rise, and units that were once affordable are becoming unattainable for low-income residents. So how did we get here? A new report out of DePaul University's Institute for Housing Studies looks at Chicago's rental housing data to tell us. And with us now to discuss is the executive director of the Institute, Jeff Smith. Welcome to Reset, Jeff. Uh, Thank you. Also here is Albie Galoon, senior reporter for Crane's Chicago Business. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So, Jeff, define affordable in this case. What makes a unit affordable? (laughs) Well, this is a tricky one uh, to define, but I think uh, just broadly speaking, uh, an affordable rental housing unit is one where the renter household is paying 30% or less of their income uh, towards housing costs. So who should be able to afford it then? Like who, who qualifies for affordable housing? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, this is where I think the, the definition of affordable housing um, from a supply side gets a little trickier because you have you know, subsidized affordable housing, essentially, which is rental housing that has some type of government that's attached to a government program that keeps that unit affordable. And it's really designed for certain types of renter households earning, you know, different levels of the area median income. And that the, the program qualifications kind of vary based on your household size and the type of program that's out there. What we're looking at in our report is a bit broader, and it's sort of looking at the broader housing market. So okay. it's not just looking at subsidized rental units, but looking at all types of rental housing and changes in those affordability levels. So basically there's this whole other swath of the housing market that's not subsidized and it's just sort of affordable based on market conditions essentially or the quality of the property or the nature of the owner of that property. And that's really where you're seeing the loss of those affordable or lower cost rental units. Um, and sort of we're trying to, what we're trying to do with our report is really quantify those pressures and the loss of those units citywide. So, Albie, talk us through the attempts then that have been made to to create more affordable housing in Chicago in the past. Well, there are all sorts of strategies that have been used for years, if not decades, to um, promote the creation of affordable housing and the preservation of affordable housing because there's a great effort towards just keeping the affordable housing that we have. Yeah. And so... um, you know, one thing that is um, pr- a pretty has been a pretty powerful tool is the low-income housing tax credit program, which is a federal program. It was launched in 1986, and basically, they're tax credits that um, can be used to finance uh, affordable housing projects and mixed-income housing projects. And so, a lot of developers, because it's hard to get f- traditional financing from you know, private sector lenders to pay for affordable housing. So a lot of developers will use tax credits um, to finance their projects and to refinance existing projects. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example of what's out there. You know, there's tax increment financing that developers and landlords can get through the city. There are other loan programs through the Illinois Housing Development Authority, and the list kind of goes on and on. So, Jeff, you know, hearing that that list that I'll be just read off to us, I mean, what's the end goal here for these programs? Are, are we trying to get tenants to live there long term or is this meant to just serve as a, as a bridge for people to eventually become homeowners? 
I mean, I think it's a bit of a mix of, of, of goals. I think in the short term, the goal is just to create more affordable rental housing so that lower income renters have a place to live that's stable, affordable. Um, and I think the longer term goal, I mean, in certain, certainly in certain circumstances, uh, graduating to market rate housing. So it's not real. So you're not living in necessarily just subsidized affordable housing, but moving into you know, unsubsidized or market rate rental housing, or in some cases, moving into home ownership could be, could be a goal. Um, but yeah, definitely the, the goal of these different types of affordable housing programs are just to support the creation of new affordable rental housing units. And so we're clear, Abby, why is Chicago struggling, especially right now, with an affordable housing shortage? Well, there's there's always been an affordable housing shortage, really. It's one of those things, it's kind of like yeah. poverty or homelessness. It always kind of exists and it gets better or it gets worse. But right and, now with an influx of, of migrants in the city, for instance, right? Well, I'm sure that doesn't help. But, you know, what's happened, and this is what Jeff uh, kind of outlined in his report, was that we had a reduction in the supply of affordable housing and an increase in demand for affordable housing. And, you know, the reason of one reason that affordable housing, the supply declined is that rents just increased. So as rents get more expensive, they become less affordable for people. And then, um, as Jeff also pointed out um, in in his report, we've seen a loss, actual physical loss Mm -hmm. of some affordable units. And so those, you know, that that's, those are two reasons that the yeah. gap, the affordability gap, widened in the time period that Jeff looked at. Yeah, let's dig into that uh, report from the, the Institute for Housing Studies at DePaul. It, it showed Chicago had made big improvements in addressing the affordable housing crisis before the pandemic. So tell us where we are now, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, as I'll be mentioned, I think that the big driver of, you know, the, the affordability gap is sort of a product of two different components. One is demand. So these are the number of low-income renters that didn't need affordable housing. And, and basically, 2012 to 2019, you saw a loss or decline in the number of low-income renters in Chicago. So these losing those low-income renters for various reasons. Best case scenario, those low-income renters in 2012 economic improvements are now no longer lower income and therefore no longer quote-unquote demanding affordable housing but in other scenarios they couldn't find affordable housing so they may have left the city um, because of lack of affordability so we've seen a loss of those long-term renters between 2012 and 2019 during the pandemic there was a bit of a reverse in that trend where we saw a slight increase in low-income renter households um, and then, as Albie also mentioned in our report, you know, between 20, the big driver of affordable affordability pressures is the loss of that low-cost rental supply. And we've seen that loss pretty consistent between 2012 and 2019, but that loss accelerated between uh, 19 and 2021 during the pandemic due to, you know, rising costs, uh, you know, maybe facing property owners due to yeah. inflationary pressures, um, you know, some Landlords might be trying to take advantage of increased demand from higher income renter households and increasing rents. It could be the, the loss of properties due to deterioration, demolition, or just conversion from rental to single family or owner-occupied housing. So that rapid loss of, of, of those low-cost rental units mm-hmm. um, you know, is really the, the driver paired with the increase in low-income renters of that increased affordability gap. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The cost of living in Chicago, it's continuing to rise and it's leaving many of Chicago's low-income residents struggling to find affordable housing. So we're talking with Albie Galoon of Crane's Chicago Business and Jeff Smith of the Institute for Housing Studies. 
about why that is and what projects are in the works to create more affordable housing in the city. So let's talk more about that. Uh, I'll be why is rent still going up? I think that that's the question that a lot of folks uh, want answers to. Like, you know, what are the driving factors that are just continuing to raise rents across the city? Well, you know, rents maybe a year or so ago were really uh, skyrocketing. Oh, yeah. And um, they've actually, they're still increasing. And, you know, you can cite so many different data sources on this, but I think they generally all say the same thing, and that is, yes, rents are still rising, but they're not rising at the rate they were a year or so ago. So that's a good thing. And so I guess I'm, you know, one thing I'm wondering about is when Jeff does his report for 2023 or next year, I'm going to, I wonder if the gap is going to close again, just because of what's happening in the rental market. Yeah. Um, But generally speaking, uh, what drives, um, what drives rent and what drives demand for housing is is household formation. And a lot of that has to do with jobs. And, you know, in a city like Chicago, more people are moving into Chicago. And if they're moving to, into a specific neighborhood of Chicago, that will drive up rents in that particular na- neighborhood. So job growth has a lot to do with that. And, you know, then, of course, if you look at the market and you split it up between rental housing uh-huh. and for sale housing, there's dynamics between those two as well because uh, it's interesting right now because interest rates have gone up, and so that that's pushed up the cost of borrowing for people who want to buy a home. So that means more people who maybe would had planned on buying a home are going to stay in an apartment for longer. So that's going to boost demand for housing. Mm. So all these factors kind of. Interact with Happening each other. at the same time. Yeah. And, and so, uh, Jeff, Albie mentioned neighborhoods there. Are there neighborhoods or, or areas that are losing affordable housing more than others? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think one dynamic that, that kind of underlies what Albie was talking about, but maybe it's worth pulling out um, as an additional talking point, is just the transition and the nature of the housing stock. You know, what we've seen is a loss of units in properties that traditionally provide low-cost rental units to modest income renters. A lot of these come from two to four unit buildings in neighborhoods across the city, but we've seen a loss of those units in neighborhoods, you know, like Logan Square and the north and northwest sides along the lakefront, you know, both the north and south ends of the lakefront. So those types of properties have provided low-cost rental housing for for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, They're being demolished and replaced by single-family homes or other types of uh, you know, higher cost rental units. And in, and in terms of the new units that are coming online, they're not necessarily affordable. So if you look at like Logan Square, for example, if you looked in Logan Square 10, 15 years ago along the blue line, you wouldn't have seen, you know, these high rise new construction rental properties. You would have seen, you know, smaller scale buildings. Um, but now you see those rental units. So if you look at Logan Square as a neighborhood, it's got an increase in rental uh, housing units in the neighborhood, probably, but you're, the types of units that are providing those rent those rentals are different, and you're losing those lower co- those types of units that are typically providing low cost rents and replacing them with units that are higher cost, and mm-hmm. therefore um, that transition really erodes affordability, and it's a tricky thing to reverse um, because you can't really create new affordable units without spending a ton of money um, to build those units. So when it comes to creating long-term changes and improvements, Albie, who are the key players here and what's the incentive for them to create more affordable units? Well, a lot of it rests on City Hall. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the 
the mayor's office. Lori Lightfoot um, made uh, housing a real, a real big priority, and her her housing commissioner, Marisa Navarra, was a strong advocate for um, housing and using housing as a force of desegregating the city. Really, so um, it's a political issue, and. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what happens as the Brandon Johnson administration gets going and with this new city council and, you know, what kind of um, ideas they want to push forward to promote affordable housing. Gentrification is also at play here, right? It plays a significant role in in changing a neighborhood. Um, What it can look like is, you know, pricing residents out of the, the homes that they've lived in for decades, Um, and making way at the same time for wealthier people to just take their place. Where do the people priced out move to? Well, they move to less expensive neighborhoods. You get priced out of um, Pilsen, for instance. You move to Little Village, and you get priced out of Little Village. You move west. um, It's interesting because there's really a double-edged sword to this gentrification issue, because and there are a lot of concerns about it, down in Woodlawn because of the Obama Presidential Center and the city has taken steps to kind of protect people from being displaced. And, you know, these are neighborhoods that, you you know, the housing has been relatively low cost for a long time because there's just not that much demand for it. And then all of a sudden you get a surge of investment, you get money coming in and it drives up. And that should be a good thing, right? It should be a good thing for the neighborhood, but it drives up the cost of housing. And so there's this kind of... um, uh, in negative impact that it has on on renters. Jeff, uh, are there uh, any organizations that are creating affordable housing with the goal of of bringing displaced Chicagoans back to their neighborhoods? Uh, I mean, there are certainly a whole host of organizations and initiatives that are trying to both uh, prioritize develop the development of programs to preserve existing affordable rental housing, um, you know, and then really support owners of those small-scale, you know, owners of those, those two flats. There are also programs to try to create infill housing in a lot of the city's neighborhoods on the south and west sides and, and make sure, that, you know, to take advantage, quote-unquote, of, you know, vacant land that, mm-hmm. you know, in many cases is a, is a disamenity, but also can be seen as an asset because the city owns a lot of those vacant lots that can, you know, help support the development of new housing on those lots so that could be affordable. And, and I know there are programs to leverage that to attract residents back to those historically disinvested neighborhoods. So there are certainly you know, programs out there and an, and an interest in, in in leveraging those types of programs to bring people back to the city. Well, before we take a pause, I mean, how, how could lawmakers in Chicago use this data in your report, Jeff, to, to change the current affordable housing shortage that we're in right now? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are you know, different types of big picture priorities that our data point to. I mean, one of them mentioned is really the need to preserve the existing affordable rental housing stock. When I say affordable, I'm really talking about unsubsidized, low cost rental units and, and really supporting, you know, existing small scale owners of those, of those properties so that they don't feel the need to rise, right, increase their rents or to sell their property if, you know, property taxes go up dramatically or if they need to put a new roof on their building or if they you know, have to find insurance or, or whatever the case may be. You know, mm-hmm. those types of pressures are significant to those types of small scale owners. 
and they don't have the the resources to kind of ride out the storm, so to speak, that the larger scale owners do. So I think really prioritizing strategies to support those folks because they are really the ones who are providing that low cost rental housing, and and they are also the most vulnerable to these shocks into the in the economy and into the in the housing market. So I think really prioritizing those types of strategies to mm-hmm. help those owners. Or to, if they need to sell, transition those properties into some other type of entity that can own those buildings and keep them affordable over the long term. What do you think, Albie? Well, you know, one thing that the the state did uh, a couple of years ago is passed a, a, a kind of housing legislation that um, provided property tax abatements for um, developers and landlords that um, create or preserve affordable housing, they basically just get a property tax break. And Mm so, you know, that's one thing that is still pretty early. So we don't know what kind of impact it's had, but I think people are pretty optimistic about that. And then, you know, there are other things out there that, that the city could do, and these seem kind of marginal, but people, people love to talk about them. Granny flats. And these are, you know, accessory Ah. dwelling units, coach houses, what have you that um, easing regulations to allow people, homeowners, to build an extra unit on their property off their alley or something, yeah. or providing incentives or... Folks uh, have mixed feelings about those. They, they, yeah, it's yeah. kind of controversial. Yeah. But um, uh, garden apartments, making it easier easier for um, property owners to rent out their, their basement apartments. That's something that you hear people talk about. Mm-hmm. So those are just a few, a few ideas. We're back with more Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we've been talking about the gap between the need and supply of affordable housing. There's a recent report showing that the gap was actually narrowing before 2020, but that progress stagnated and even reversed in some ways after the pandemic. So how can Chicago regain the momentum to support affordable living within city limits? Still with us, we've got Jeff Smith, Executive Director of the Institute for Housing Studies at DePaul University, and Albie Galoon, who's Senior Reporter for Crane Chicago Business. Albie, the LaSalle Street Reimagined Project, that's a mixed-income housing effort that's happening downtown, and it's a holdover from Lightfoot, right? Correct. Uh, Remind us. Yeah, so last year, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot proposed this idea of converting, uh, you know, largely vacant downtown or office office buildings on LaSalle Street, LaSalle Street, I should say, uh, into housing and affordable housing, a mixed income housing, I should say. And so back in uh, in March, just a couple months before she left office, she announced that uh, three buildings actually were selected for this program right on LaSalle Street, mm-hmm. uh, encompassing one one uh, thousand apartments. 320 of them would be affordable. And so this is a pretty big deal because it basically kills two birds with one stone. It solves two problems. One is the big vac- big office vacancy mm-hmm. in the loop, and and then it provides affordable housing for people in the loop too, which is an area that really doesn't have much affordable housing. And so it hasn't advanced um, in, in the last couple months, so it's going to be Interesting to see what Brandon Johnson wants to do with this program, because it's going to cost a lot of public money. Yeah. And, and something else that's come up as we've talked about this this project over the, the, the last few months. I mean, even if rent there is within range for lower income people, are there affordable grocery stores and restaurants on and around LaSalle Street? Like, is the is the availability of affordable housing in that area 
is it just setting up residents for failure if if rent is the only thing that they can afford? I mean, what do you think of that, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really, really good question. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, that's always been a constant uh, debate about, you know, the need to create affordable rental housing in opportunity areas or areas with, you know, significant amenities um, to en- enable, you know, those renters to take advantage of those those opportunities and those amenities. So I do think an area like downtown where you don't have a lot of existing affordable rental housing um, certainly, you know, is an area where you need to develop more of it. Um, and especially when you think about the accessibility of to other parts of the city based on you know, the transit network and other types of amenities that might be available. So I mm-hmm. do think that, that the idea of developing affordable housing as part of a broader plan to transform downtown is really important. Yeah, I'm just curious, Albie, if, if like talking about affordable groceries and schools and healthcare, like is all of that being taken into account when these folks are choosing locations to build affordable housing? Uh, you don't hear that as much, really. Uh, and, and I, you know, I haven't heard that that much. It's a very good question. I haven't heard it that much in um, in this discussion over LaSalle Street. It is, you know, there is a question about, you know, will people want to live there? Because LaSalle Street and the Loop have generally been, been considered, you know, a place where people go to work and then they go, they leave and go home. Yeah. And it's becoming more of a 20, that, that part of downtown over the last 10 or 15 years has become more of a 24-7 neighborhood with the, you know, Millennium Park opening. So, you know, I think the trends are moving in the right direction. And, you know, that probably is the solution for that part of downtown is like you just need more of a kind of mixed use environment where you have all these different activities, hotels, office buildings, condos, apartments, and and retail to support them. Yeah, before we dig for, further into that, we've got to mention Chicago Housing Commissioner Marissa Navarra uh, is planning on leaving her position soon, right, uh, after four years of being in that role. So do you think that the change in leadership could change the trajectory of, of the current housing efforts? Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, those are some big shoes to, to fill because, as I said, she's a strong advocate for housing. Yeah. And, you know, she came in with a uh, real focus on using housing to promote social goals, with goals, which is to basically desegregate the city. And and so she, as the um, she worked for the Metropolitan Planning Council and authored this report about um, segregation in in Chicago, and that was kind of like the foundation for her approach and Lightfoot's really approach to to housing and a lot of other things. So. Um, we'll see, you know, Brandon Johnson, obviously he's a progressive and he's talked a lot about homelessness. And if you go on his website and you look at all the things he wants to accomplish to advance affordable housing, it's, it's a long list. So Mm -hmm. we'll just have to see what happens. What are your thoughts on that, Jeff? Yeah. I mean, I think as as I'll be said, uh, some big shoes to fill. Um, I think that under the last four years, uh, there's been a lot of really innovative, approaches to creating affordable housing in, you know, high demand, high amenity neighborhoods like near transit, for example, the, there have been a number of ordinances passed and projects um, in the pipeline to create new affordable housing units near transit, which I think is, you know, an example of the, the strategy under, under Commissioner Navarra to, to really, uh, you know, try to transform um, affordable housing and, and make sure that it's developed in those high amenity areas. And I think we'll just have to see under the next commissioner, you know, what 
their priorities are and, and, and how they advance um, towards those goals. So as you mentioned, Albie, there are other projects too, right? They include converting Lincoln Park's Covent Hotel into 30 units of affordable studios. Uh, Inglewood's former Wood Elementary School building is being turned into 48 affordable one- to two-bedroom units, uh, a health center and community center as well. Um, Edgewater's landmark and former Epworth Church, that's also slated to be used for residential purposes. What are your thoughts on those projects? Well, those are all kind of like singles in in, in a game, and that's really important. Uh, and they're not huge projects, but yeah. you need to do a lot of that. Like it's not going uh, to take care of a lot of people. Right, but you need to do that all over the city to solve the problem. And... You need to do it in high-cost neighborhoods. You need to do it in low-cost neighborhoods. And, you know, there are much bigger projects that are in the works, too. This um, last last week, I wrote a story about a plan by some developers and the Chicago Housing Authority to build 742 units on a former, like a seven-acre site uh, where Cabrini Green once was. Mm-hmm. So that's been, that site has been fallow for a long time. And, you know, CHA is finally getting going with that. So that is good news to a lot of people who have been waiting a long time for something to happen there. And there's a lot to consider here, to your point. I mean, it's not as simple as just seeing an empty building and converting it into an apartment, right? I mean, what are, talk us through what developers have to consider when they're looking at potential options here, potential properties. It It's really complicated. And, you know, this office to residential trend, it's what so many people in real estate are talking about across the country. And, I, you know, I think Chicago probably, in terms of a strategy for downtown, is, mm-hmm. is maybe a little bit ahead of the game. But, you know, if you talk to developers, they will um, say, you know, it's there's so many physical constraints. And, like, if you have a really large floor plate that's suited for office space, it's very hard to convert that into chop it up into spaces that work as apartments. So Yeah, what t- does that conversion process look like? Uh it costs a lot of money and it requires some pretty creative architects and construction firms to do it. And you know, th- and this is why this is why I think there's some people who are skeptical about the LaSalle Street uh, reimagined initiative because it's as I th- I think I said before that for these three initial projects uh, they're seeking $188 million in tax increment financing. And so that's a lot of money. Yeah. And, and But the problem is that you need a subsidy to make to convert these buildings into housing, and then you also need a subsidy to, conver- to convert these buildings into mixed-income housing where you know, you're going to have an affordable component that's not going to be generating as much rent as you would get from a market rate uh. unit. So. Jeff, weigh in here. How much do you think that these conversions will help address the overall problem we, we've been talking about? Like, will conversions alone make a significant difference if we find enough yeah, properties? I mean, I think, I'll, I mean, I think I'll, I'll just I'll echo kind of all these analogy, you know, of, you know, singles and doubles. And I think in some ways, you know, that's the best approach and the most cost-effective approach in some ways to to, to addressing this issue. Um, there really isn't like a silver bullet type of solution where, hey, this is the one thing that's going to crack the code and solve the affordable housing crisis um, in Chicago or you know nationally. Um, you know, it's going to require a lot of different strategies, a lot of different approaches, um, and I think that um, you know, kind of 
investing in, in innovation around, uh, you know, trying different things out, I think is, is going to be one of the key things that we'll need to continue to do to, to identify what, which of those strategies are, are successful, scalable, replicable, um, and, and kind of continue to, to build on, on, on that. And I think the stuff that's happening downtown, um, LaSalle Street and other types of programs, um, you know, are, are, are going to be important to see how they work out. Can we point to success stories in other cities? that, you know, converted unused buildings to affordable housing units and it worked? Um, you know, I think that you know, every, you know, there are, when we put out our, our report a few weeks ago, uh, Harvard's uh, Joint Center for Housing Studies put out the State of the Nation's Housing, and it highlighted a very similar trend to what we're seeing here locally. And one of the big things was every city in the country, essentially, is losing low-cost rental housing supply, right? So this is not just an issue happening in Chicago. It's happening everywhere. Um, And I don't know that anyone's really (laughs) solved it, but I know that there are, you know, efforts going on just like there are in Chicago and Boston to try to figure out how to transition small scale rental properties to new owners who want to keep them affordable. Right. So there's programs in Denver to try to leverage uh, their investment in their transit network to generate resources that Mm -hmm. can be deployed to build new affordable housing in those areas of opportunity. So there are definitely efforts going on across the country to address this challenge. Uh, And Chicago, you know, I think is is, is very innovative in many ways. And Mm -hmm. just like Chicago, there are other cities also trying to figure out how to to solve this problem. Final thoughts from you, Albin, our our last 30 seconds here. How do we narrow the gap, the affordability gap? Well, I was just going to say, because you uh, you were asking about what's happening nationally. And I will say, actually, uh, if we want to end on a positive note, um, yes, please. Chicago actually is relatively affordable compared to a lot of other cities. So, and if you can look at a lot of studies that will show that. So, in some ways, um, you know, that's an advantage for the city as it relates to attracting business and talent. And yeah. you know, when we think about uh, like tech tech uh, workers and how are we gonna how are we gonna um, set up our economy for success going forward yeah how are we going to attract the you know survive and compete in the knowledge economy having that will be will give us a competitive advantage we'll have to leave it there we've been talking with albie galoon senior reporter for crane chicago business as well as jeff smith the executive director of the depaul university's institute for housing studies thank you both so much